0: Happy Monday, listeners. Welcome to the Religious Studies Project. I'm Dave McConaughey, and joining me today is...
1: Andy Alexander.
0: It's so nice to be speaking with you again, the newly appointed co-managing editor and co-all the behind-the-scenes things with me. It's it's a delight to officially welcome you to managing all of the madness that is the Religious <laughs> Studies Project behind-the-scenes What do we have in store for the listeners today?
1: Well, thank you so much, Dave. I am very excited myself. Looking forward to diving into all things RSP. And one of those things, of course, is our fantastic interview today with Dr. Noah Solomon by Ray Kim. In this episode, Dr. Solomon talks about his recent book, For Love of the Prophet, An Ethnography of Sudan's Islamic State, where he explores issues of power and identity construction and boundary formation with regard to the formation and the location of the Islamic State in Sudan.
0: I think Ray Kim and Noah Salman remind us how fragile the circumstances are in Sudan, and that after decades of political instability and conflicts, that Though we had hoped and many hoped that the aspirations of the Islamic State would not come too much, they had proved very resilient. And so one of the main questions that's being asked here is, how can we explain why the Islamic State in Sudan was so resilient when, by all accounts, it, it should have been, or at least the experts thought it should be, uh, impossible? So the ethnographic work that we see here really shines a light on how embedded this um, political apparatus was in the daily lives of people that were living in Sudan.
1: Absolutely. And it's a great way of thinking about the issues and questions of authenticity that are so often tied to the idea of this pure Islam with regard to the idea of a state body. And this is something that Solomon really nicely teases out for us in this episode.
0: Well, I can't wait. Let's listen in. Welcome, everyone. My
2: name is Ray Kim. And today we have with us Dr. Noah Solomon, Associate Professor of Religion and Irfan and Nurin Galleria Research Chair in Islamic Studies at the University of Virginia. And the author of For Love of the Prophet, An Ethnography of Sudan's Islamic State. His book was published in 2016 by Princeton University Press and went on to win the 2017 Albert Hurani Prize from the Middle East Studies Association, as well as the 2017 Award for Excellence in the Study of Religion in Analytical Descriptive Studies from the American Academy of Religion. Amazing accolades for a first book. He is joining us from Beirut, Lebanon, where he is currently conducting research for the Mellon New Direction Fellowship, looking at the question of how Islam imagines and comes to manage difference internal to its community over three sites, Beirut, Muscat, and Khartoum. So without further ado, welcome to the Religious Studies Project, Dr. Solomon.
3: Thank you so much, Ray. Thanks for inviting me to this conversation. It's really great to be here with you today. Thank you for making the time.
2: Um, currently, I know that you're in Beirut working on this new project, but I would like to start off our interview with um, focusing on your first book, "For Love of the Prophet: Ethnography of Sudan's Islamic State." Great. And to get the ball rolling, um, let's start. Let, let's start by setting the context and some baseline knowledge of Sudan for our listeners who may not be as familiar with Sudan. Can you tell us a bit about its modern history? You know, it's uh, ethno-religious landscape. You know What was the context in which you were conducting your research?
3: Sure, uh, absolutely. Um, so the research for this book took place, uh, as all research for any book takes place, I suppose, at a very particular moment in Sudan's history. And in order to understand the book and the intervention that it makes, um, one needs to understand where sudan was at that moment that i started uh, doing my research there which was about uh 15 years ago or so a little more at this point um and what was going on at that time is sudan uh was about uh, a little over 10 years into a project to establish something called an islamic state and that project uh, had gone through many different phases and, uh, and forms over that period. But when I arrived in Sudan, what was going on was uh, an attempt was made by the governing regime to come to some kind of uh, peaceful conclusion to what had been the longest-running civil war in modern African history, that is, the war between Sudan's North and South. And um, in order to do that, the regime uh, was being asked to question some of the most basic principles of this Islamic State project, because the rebels in the South were not merely demanding a sharing of power, but were demanding... Uh, a rethinking of the identity of the Sudanese state and the Sudanese nation. So when I arrived in Sudan, it was at a particularly interesting moment for me to study the Islamic state because it was uh, responding to a bunch of really unprecedented challenges for it. Um, so... uh w- by the time my research really kicked off, uh, there was a power sharing agreement in place uh, called the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. And the research really looks at how the Islamic State uh, became this object of debate and controversy and was rethought and reworked and rejected at times and picked up at others. Um, at this moment where the regime was being forced really for the first time to deal in a serious way with questions of uh, of diversity of the sharing of power, uh, et cetera.
2: Wow. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, you said something, you know, like, I think when, when we divide, you know, the, the conflict uh, within Sudan, you know, or between North and South Sudan, uh, you know, it, it's so easy to see in terms of a binary, right? Like North versus South and eventually it just becomes Muslim versus Christian. But how 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 diverse is the religious landscape in Sudan? Are we talking about only Muslims and only Christians?
3: Not at all. Um, Sudan is an extremely uh, diverse ethnic, linguistic, and religious landscape. Um, in addition to uh, Muslims of many different. Uh, uh, orders and varieties. There's Christians of many different orders and varieties and also people practicing uh, traditional African religions. Uh, and, and these aren't always exclusive categories either. People uh, are sometimes straddling more than one of them at the same time. Um, also, uh, the logic, uh, which you're right, is often framed in the conflict of being one between a Muslim North and a Christian South, Um was was and is a a faulty one there are many christians in the north uh both uh well because uh, uh, many people converted to christianity in the north but also because of displacement due to uh the civil war um and there are many muslims in the south as well and one of the problems i'd say one of the interventions that um this book and then some later work that I did in and on South Sudan, which was became a, a focus for me after this book um, was on the fallacy of trying to uh, divide because the idea of Muslim North versus the Christian South wasn't just a way that journalists framed the conflict in Sudan. It became the reality on the ground, right? In 2011, South Sudan uh, secedes from the mm-hmm. North and secedes uh, very much uh, uh, the mode of governmentality through which it's succeeded it see it was very much on that basis. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't lead to success, right? It, we learned that the idea that you, if you just, you know, uh, stuff uh, one kind of people in one country or, or you think you're doing that and another kind of people in another country and then we'll have peace um, shows us that uh, diversity is like a cell that keeps dividing uh, yeah. endlessly, right? That no matter... How many times you try to kind of separate people out, um, you find that uh, new modes of difference and diversity uh, arise, and new uh, places of conflict around those different uh, visions for how the political community should be constituted lead to uh, conflict. And so if you don't actually deal with trying to um, trying to figure out how to work together, um you're going to be forced to to uh suffer the same kinds of conflicts over and over again that's exactly what happened yeah. um in in the north and south is that after partition in 2011 we saw the rise of very similar looking conflicts but internal to those two new states mm. um so I, one way of of, uh, of thinking about it is that the north sort of tried to cut off the south but <laughs> But as you know, in any map, no matter how much cutting of the south, there's always a south, right? <laughs> yeah, right. Yes. You can you, you, No matter if the country is an inch is an inch uh, yeah. long, you're always going to have a south. And by the south, I mean that in sort of scare quotes. The problem of the south, the problem of diversity, you can't escape by cutting off pieces of the country. And, mm. and indeed, Sudan has not been able to do that throughout its modern history until until today. Until. Uh, the post-revolutionary context that it's in right now, it's yeah. to also struggling with similar issues.
2: Focusing on North Sudan, right? Um, how did Sudan's Islamist government you know, navigate the country's ethnic and religious pluralism? And did their approach and strategies change after the peace agreement with the, uh, with the South?
3: This is a hard question to answer in some ways, um, because uh, many argued, uh, and I can see where they're coming from. But in some ways, um, the peace agreement that was signed in 2005, which was supposed to establish a period of national unity, to kind of it, the, the language they used was to make unity attractive. Okay, before the vote, which would come in six years on secession. Um, many saw uh, secession as a fait accompli. Um, Mm. But I think, uh, or I don't think, I I observed also that many did not. Um, And the people who did not and really were working to make uh, uh, unity attractive were often uh, a strange mix of people. (laughs) So for example, uh, leftists in the north, for example, uh, people who were not uh, moving along with the uh, Islamist project of, of the regime, they certainly wanted unity to happen because many of their uh, uh, political compatriots were in the South. Um, also a variety of kind of, uh, I would say, uh, middle-stream uh, Islamists who saw there being a certain kind of promise or model for the future in an Islam that could um, that could, uh uh, grapple with and come to integrate, is the word I'm looking for, mm. diversity and successful ways. But you certainly saw, uh, and, and John Garang himself, the uh, leader of, uh, of South Sudan, who tragically uh, died uh, shortly after the peace agreement was signed in a helicopter crash, he was not a secessionist. He was a unionist. He wanted Sudan to be reformed uh, from its northern to its southern border and from its eastern to its western border, but there was always within the SBLM movement that he uh, led uh, a strong secessionist um, uh, tendency, a strong secessionist block uh, if you can call it that um, and who thought you know there's no working with <laughs> there's no working with uh, with the north and there were many in the north too who thought, you know we can have our true Islamic state only. When we get rid of, uh, you know, this thirty percent of Christians, okay, we'll have a few left over, but for the most part, we won't have to deal with this problem anymore. <laughs> um, so they were strange bedfellows too, right? You have the sort of most conservative uh, uh, Islamists in the north having the same opinion about secession as the kind of most uh, leftist uh, uh, Southerners uh, <laughs> who both thought we can't work together, and then this kind of. Um, whole range of people in the middle who indeed were really trying to think about diversity. And so I, I did see, particularly in those first few years, um, before it really, it really did seem to everybody like a fait accompli, I, I did see a lot of work, um, uh, at, at many levels, uh, mm. both at, and, you know, among, uh, government organizations and, uh, private organizations thinking about, uh, what, uh, what, what Islam, uh, what an Islam, an Islamic political order would look like that took, uh, some of the concerns of non Muslims seriously. It wasn't successful. Um, uh, indeed, unity was made not attractive in the end, and, you know, uh, over 90% of Southerners voted for secession. Mm-hmm. But, uh, there certainly was an experiment going on to think, to think through, uh, diversity in a more serious way than prior to the peace agreement, if that was your question.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, We've talked, uh, we've both mentioned Islamists quite a few times in our discussion already, but I think it might be helpful for our listeners to kind of uh, take a couple steps back and um, maybe define what this term means or describe, you know, who the Islamists are in Sudan, right? We have the general understanding of Islamism as perhaps a political ideology, right, that, you know, tries to um, referring to, I guess, an ideology that wants diverse forms of social and political or public and political life um, being guided by Islamic principles or outright uh, Islamic law. Is that the case in Sudan Or or does Islamism take up a different flavor in Sudan?
3: Yes and no. I think you've done a great job defining um, what the term means, both uh, when it's used in in Arabic and in in English. But what I would say that's important to know about Sudan is that um, perhaps unlike, uh, well, I don't want to contrast it, but uh, in Sudan, uh, as is probably the case in in other places that I haven't studied as closely, um, uh, is. Islamist uh, as a category can, uh, merge and overlap and bleed into many other categories that are often thought of as distinct. Mm-hmm. So for example, and this is part of, um, maybe one of the, one of the main interventions of, of the book in terms of, uh, thinking about the political landscape in Sudan and why, why it has such a funny title. Um, you know mm-hmm. why? Why a book about the ethnography of Sudan's Islamic state is called "For Love of the Prophet," evoking Sufi poetry or, or whatnot, uh, and th- and that kind of dissonance was in- was intentional. Um, uh, and, w- and what I what I mean by it is that um, one of the things that the Islamists were successful at doing, if they were not so good at establishing successful institutions. Um, mm. uh, <laughs> right, a, a successful legal system and educational system that didn't become a major um, area of, of conflict. Um, one thing they were very successful at doing is instilling some of the um, principles of Islamism, i.e. thinking about political community in Islamic terms mm. um, throughout a much wider segment of the population than just members of the Muslim Brotherhood. So, and I, and I mentioned that organization because it's the sort of classic, uh, when we talk about Islamism in, uh, in the 20th and 21st century, we're often thinking about that organization or its offshoots. Right. Um, but, um, I, uh, came to see many people kind of that, that, that whereas the, uh, Activists of the of the National Islamic Front, which was Sudan's own uh, branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, came to kind of set the grammar of the conversation. Many people were participating in it. Many people were imagining what an Islamic state would would look like, and many times in 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 opposition to the regime. But they were still talking about political community in Islamic terms, and those included Sufis. Those included. Um, uh, Salafi organizations that were not particularly political in their, uh, they were, you know, mostly um, um, proselytizing kind of organizations, but also came to, to think about these kinds of questions that the state was asking. So the state was kind of asking these questions or sparking a conversation in which many groups who wouldn't traditionally be called Islamists became involved. And so that's why on the one hand, I find it a useful, a uh, descriptive term, but on, on another hand, it becomes a kind of meaningless term—the term, mm. term Islamist—because <laughs> you know so many people were involved in that conversation who certainly would not define themselves as Islamists, but mm. were also thinking about political community in Islamic terms, and, um, and 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 the government saw that they saw that they were not uh, the activists of the of the National Islamic Front, saw that they. Um, that their project uh, to create an Islamic state could become more powerful by opening the conversation, uh, right. even when it got out of control to the extent of people opposing their vision of the Islamic state um, at least uh, at least they could kind of implant in society a notion that uh, political community in Islamic terms made sense yeah, and I, I think I think it even lasts post. Sorry to, to no, get no, you no, out no. there, but yeah, yeah, but no, I think absolutely. it even lasts, strangely, post-revolution, where we have a, a highly secularist uh, a government in control. We still see a lot of uh, political discourse and what we might call the public sphere taking place in Islamic terms.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, everything you just said just kind of reinforces, you know, it, how I viewed your work as a very creative and dynamic challenge uh, to kind of expand our scope or understanding of how we look for the Islamic State or what we call the Islamic State, right? The the usual suspects involved in creating what we we call this quote-unquote Islamic State Um, and, and and your work definitely challenges us to move beyond arguments about the impossibility of the Islamic state as a moral or an ethical political project. Why do you think it's supposed impossibility garners more scholarly attention than its feasibility? And how did you get to, you know, where you were to ask that question?
3: This is a great uh, question. And, you know, uh, let me answer the second part, or the, the first part first. Why you asked Why uh, why the impossibility of the Islamic State garners more scholarly attention than its feasibility? Right? Was that mm-hmm. what you, was that? Yeah, you yeah, yeah, it? yeah. Um, I, I think it's um, first and foremost. Uh, there are two reasons. Uh, first and foremost, we live in an era in which Islamic politics are seen as anachronistic in which teleological models of history predominate, in which it's, I think, really hard not to surrender to global norms. We saw this, uh, this is an example maybe out of tangent, but I think an important one. We saw this, uh, given what we were just talking about, we saw this, uh, I think, with with great uh, tragedy uh, with the foundation of South Sudan. Here there was no threat of Islamic politics emerging, but we had the opportunity in 2011 of starting a new state from scratch and still it came to be organized in very predictable manners and led to utter disaster. So I think Islamic politics is the same. It's beyond the realm of our imagination. And, and what I wanted to ask in this book is why and when does it become possible and who yes. wants it to be so? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that's a question we, we I, I understand and I oftentimes sympathize with polemics against Islamic politics, which a lot of the work uh, on Islamic politics, particularly in Sudan focuses on, but for me it um, it it leaves a question unanswered, which is why do some people desire it? Very mm-hmm. smart and thoughtful people come to desire Islamic <laughs> politics what's the reason why what is it what kinds of problems is it helping them solve? what kinds of futures is it helping them imagine? Mm-hmm. I wanted to ask that question, and you know i've gotten. Hit in many uh, in many uh, circles for not writing a polemic. Yeah. I, I, I did, of course, uh, and I hope it's clear for anybody who reads it. I, I do offer critique of the uh, Sudanese Islamic project, which uh, deserves a, a lot of critique, without a doubt. But it's not the main focus of the book. The main focus yeah. of the book is to understand its. I think a lot of scholars have done a great job telling us about the repressive aspects of of the Sudanese state. Mm -hmm. There is not much more to say. Uh, They're spot on and correct. What we haven't understood very well is the productive aspects. What made it endure for all those years, right? They were in power for almost 30 years. And, 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 you know, it wasn't that they had a... uh, a particularly, you know, a strong, uh, strong state. In fact, it was, mm-hmm. you know, a poor and, and, and weak state at many, fighting mm-hmm. wars on many on many borders. Why did mm-hmm. it endure? How could have they lasted that long? Mm-hmm. You know, whether we hated the Islamic state or we love it, <laughs> we got to answer that question for both for both of those camps. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what that's what the book tried to do. The other reason that I think uh, the Islamic State becomes uh, – that the, in, uh, that the uh, impossibility of the Islamic State is discussed more than its feasibility is, I, I think, um, many, if not most times, uh, in both the explicitly uh, uh, coming from a religious perspective literature and the implicitly coming from a religious perspective literature – uh, uh, or I should say the literature that doesn't explicitly come from a kind of religious <laughs> perspective, there's a notion of uh, this is a muddled way of saying, it, and I'm sorry for that, but there's, what I'm trying to say is that there's a notion of Islamic authenticity in, in mm-hmm. both of those models, and um it's understood to be violated by by the modern state. And that's the argument I I think you're uh, referring to, uh, Wai'ad Harak's book, which I uh, both Mm -hmm. read appreciatively in my book, but also see some limits in, um, that there is a notion of of an authentic or pure Islam that is fundamentally incompatible with the modern state. and I'm, I'm I'm with Halak in that the modern state is also a, a political moral order that has its own uh, that has its own agenda. But where I depart from, with Halak is that um, that there's some Islam out there to be violated by it. Um, mm-hmm. I would argue that Islam, since the very foundation of something called Islam, if not before, um, has always been in conversation with. The world it's the problem of revelation It's the very problem yeah. of is is you know the, the coming down of the divine into the dunya or the world um and it's the same problem faced uh faced with the modern state but what i found my interlocutors doing is not uh, blindly uh, thinking that the modern state was just some you know envelope to uh, put forward in uh, in islamic authenticity but Rather, they saw the Islamic state as a very useful. They were quite wise to what the Islam to what, sorry to what the modern state was was doing, yeah. um, and came and saw it as a very useful tool to forward a certain kind of Islam that was different from Islam of ten years ago or twenty years ago or, or a century ago. Yeah, um, and and that was okay for them. Yeah, that's
2: yeah. What you just said is it, it's getting my. Like- Gears turning in my head. I mean, when you talk about mm. these kind of normative frameworks, that kind of seep in, or yeah. you know, normative you. That's, that's more, much more normative views. than I said. It. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I have the opportunity you. to you know listen and then you know think, and whereas you're going you know you know straight straight for these answers. Um, but I mean, like, yeah, these normative frameworks kind of seep in in terms of how scholars view is the Islamic state and, you know, they end up making, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it, some of these, uh, I guess, value judgments about, you know, should this exist, right? Should the Islamic state exist, right? Is it, it violate, as you said, is it a violation of this kind of authentic, pure Islam? And, and that's just, you know, that sure. These discussions are important and I think um, they are going to be had. And, uh, but, that's a separate line of questioning than I think the line of question that you're going for, which is more of, okay. Exactly. Yeah. You, you can say all you want about whether this frame of, uh, political structuring should exist or not, but it is existing. And you know, you're, know, you we still have to reckon with that. Like, yeah, right. That's like, why I'm an
3: ethnographer, not a theologian.
2: Yeah. <laughs> yes. That's a, that That, that is, a, involved, that is right? the way yeah. to put it. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and, since you bring that topic up, I, I guess yeah. What are some other, I guess, advantages that you know t- taking the ethnographic approach to studying the Islamic state? Like, what are some what are some of the additional um, benefits of that? What, you know, what are, what is the edge that you have?
3: Yeah, you know, I mean, I think um, the edge that that ethnography gave me was uh, to be able to see the messiness of what was going on in Sudan um as I as I found it. And you know, I I think um there's an autobiographical uh, uh sort of narrative with, within the within the book um, as well as the analytic narrative and the autobiographical narrative um as many ethnographies do is a kind of schooling um mm-hmm. a, a, a self schooling <laughs> or a schooling of the Sudanese uh, interlocutors schooling me. Mm-hmm. Um and what I mean by that is um, that uh, I had read a lot about Sudan going into the field, um, you know, both uh, primary source literature uh, coming out of the Islamic movement and uh, secondary source literature. And what I found in Sudan was something very, very different. And I think had I not been doing ethnography, mm-hmm. I would have painted a picture of Sudan from on high of an ideal, um, uh, you know, of government pronouncements, of the uh, of the ideas of uh, the Islamic movement, and and that in the end was not why I went to Sudan. I went to Sudan because it was the really one place um, in the Arabic speaking world at the time that an Islamic movement had actually come to power, um, where uh, instead of them sort of pontificating in opposition as they do in so many contexts they actually were forced to grapple with the messiness of everyday life the messiness of the challenges of diversity of uh, negotiating a peace agreement of um, dealing with international pressures etc etc and that kind of thing could only be seen through um through the ethnographic lens uh in addition i hope i'm not going on in too much length here um am i no, 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 no. Okay. Uh, <laughs> I, had to hear, I had to hear an answer to that. Uh, <laughs> no, no, please proceed.
2: Please uh, I, I, go to that. lengths.
3: Okay. Uh, I, I found the Islamic State, I think I put it in the book, uh, both more pervasive and elusive than I'd expected. And I think I couldn't have seen that in any way except the ethnographic. And what I mean by that, I went when I went to Sudan... I went to study a top-down Islamization model. I I went to study the education system. Mm -hmm. uh, Because I thought, where better to study the sort of reproduction of (laughs) the business ideology than in the classroom. Um, And when I arrived at the Ministry of Education and I did spend uh, a summer and part of the beginning of uh, my actual field work there, um, hanging out in uh, the Ministry of Education, I found that, you know, it was at the beginning of the peace agreement. Um, These institutional offices were occupied by either actual UN officials or uh, people who were working under directives of the UN uh, or various international bodies who were trying to make unity attractive and Mm. order the peace agreement, etc. And so the places I expected to find the Islamic State, it wasn't there. The institutions Mm. have been taken over by a global sort of governing order. And yet, it hadn't gone away, mm. right? The architects of the Islamic State had kind of implanted it in other places. So, for example, I spend a lot of time, uh, one one of the chapters of the book is on a uh, Islamic radio station, a government Islamic radio station that was trying to do a certain kind of Islamic education, but not through the Ministry of Education, right? Yeah. <laughs> through, through, through songs, through actually, uh, believe it or not, these this whole sort of genre of uh, of uh, pious uh, love songs, um, oh. which has to do with DJs of, of Islamism. I mean, yeah, that's what yeah, I exactly. Well, exactly, yeah. And so, you know, um, it, it was elusive in the sense that I didn't find it where I expected to find it, but it was even more pervasive in that the state was not just a found in its institutions, but was sort of spread out through the, the intellectual scape, the soundscape. Mm-hmm. Um, of, of Sudan and the ethnographic method allowed me to, you know, encounter the state on the bus when I would yeah. hear this radio station or, um, you know, other places that I think a more traditional political science method wouldn't have attuned its ear to as yeah. easily.
2: Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like devotion to the prophet is something you observed time and time again in Sudan, I think, you know, just the fact that the, the title of the book, right, For Love of the Prophet, and, you know, these devotional songs that you said was very prevalent in the soundscape of Sudan. Are are we correct to assume that this was in part by a, a very strong, thriving, vibrant Sufi culture, um, which Absolutely. is also very interesting, because conventional wisdom might have us assumed that Sufis don't get involved in politics, right? Sufis aren't involved in building an Islamic state, right? But what did your experience in Sudan, you know, tell us about this? Like, is that a correct assumption to have?
3: It's it's absolutely incorrect. Um, both both in Sudan and historically speaking, we can see uh, many movements of colonial resistance, for example, mm-hmm. were uh, came out of Sufi orders. Um, Sudan's uh, own uh, anti-colonial uh, movement, the Mahdist movement, uh, was sort of a post-Sufi movement. It was led mm-hmm. by somebody who uh, had rejected uh, contemporary Sufism, but was uh, very much emerging out of that. Um, and also in, uh, in in the Sudan that I observed, um, there there was no there was no escaping politics because mm-hmm. uh, because. The sort of the foundation of the political order had been made an Islamic one. So to comment on Islam was to comment on politics in Sudan in many ways, given the way that the government had framed what it understood political community to be. Um, but more, more particularly, Um, there were Sufis involved in all varieties of politics, whether it be uh, anti-regime politics, leftist politics, there were definitely uh, leftist Sufis out there, or Sufis who were in some way, shape, or form working with uh, the regime in power. And um, the regime saw, and I, you know, this wasn't just something I observed, but it was an actual articulated strategy that I spoke to regime intellectuals about. The regime saw in Sufism, uh, given that uh, Sufism is so widely spread in in Sudan, um, a real opportunity to um, attract uh, the public in a way that their uh, Muslim Brotherhood variety Islam that was quite restricted to a small segment of society wasn't able to do. Um, And also a way to kind of work Around some of the institutional strictures that were going on during the comprehensive peace agreement where they couldn't work in the law, they couldn't work in education because they had just made a peace agreement to, um, mm-hmm. to uh, keep those uh, areas acceptable to those ministries acceptable to both North and South. Um, the uh, kind of sort of cultural work or a- affective work that Sufi orders were so good at doing. Um, could be mobilized to support the Islamic State in a different sort of way, and so you saw, mm-hmm. for example, back to this radio station that I was talking about. Um, so the the title of the book actually uh, was supposed to be something else, but my editor told me that <laughs> it couldn't fit on the spine. <laughs> yeah. and I'm, I'm serious. Um, it was it was supposed to be a, a line of a a poem from this or a song put in okay. a, a poem put into song from this radio station that was called "The People of Sudan Love You, O Messenger of God." And um, what uh, what happened there was um, I kind of summarized the uh, title with uh, for Love of the Prophet uh, with much mm-hmm. kicking and screaming because I, I like the initial one better. Um, but the reason I bring that up now is part of the goal of the radio station was to change prophetic devotion or to think about prophetic devotion outside of a kind of individual relationship, of the muslim with the prophet to a Mm. kind of national relationship and that's Mm. why that's why the original title of the people of sudan love you O messenger of god was to me and that and that that poem slash song was so evocative of that project because it really was um it really to me in a nutshell encapsulated this whole project of using the ritual technology and the affective expertise of Sufism to think about a Sudanese nation in Islamic terms, particularly at the very moment that that was being questioned Mm. at the first time in any serious way since the, and caused the Salvation Regime, the National Islamic Front Regime came to power, that the identity of Sudan as secular or religious was being seriously put into question. And at yeah. that very moment, there were forces within the ruling regime who were trying to, okay, how can we kind of salvage this in, in some ways? How can we continue to think of Sudan in Islamic terms, even when, you know, we don't know what's going to happen with the, uh, ministry of justice and the ministry of education, et cetera. And so Sufism became a very useful, um, resource, uh, for, uh, for the regime to, uh, Forward its project through through other means, and 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 I should say I don't want to make it sound like it was the regime kind of using Sufis. There were many mm-hmm. Sufis who who saw um, a lot of resonances and things they were interested in in the regime. Mm-hmm. There were others who uh, protested the regime, and there were others who supported an Islamic state but didn't like the version of it that the regime. forward there was a whole range of yeah. uh, political opinions, and of course there were those who. Or leftist or secular etc among among sufis so a whole range yeah. and and, to, and you know to do the kind of demographic work that is often so sloppily done in places like Sudan and elsewhere uh, the sufis mm-hmm. are the tolerant ones these it, it really <laughs> okay. is once you get there is it's just you see how silly that is that you know, yeah. it's much more diverse yes our preconceived notions definitely
2: are broken down or definitely exactly. challenged exactly. to get there exactly. and i and i think the insight that you have about you know taking go, guiding us from you know understanding sufism as a purely personal mystical journey of spirituality to you know showing us the collective aspect of it right the mm-hmm. the political communal aspect of it i think mm-hmm. it's really needed because you know, we can take a very uh, i mean what a, a protestant centered or western centered lens at looking at mysticism across uh religious traditions and i think if we keep treating them as kind of like looking that looking at these other other religious traditions yeah yeah, like as uh, through a western protestant centric lens it it amounts to just you know saying like oh they're they're kind of like Just these personal trips that you know these you know these mystics take to deepen spiritual faith and understanding, but it's not just that. You know, there are very collective, political, communal aspects to this that I think gets lost out if if you take such a only that kind
3: of lens. Yes, Um, yes, and and probably it also needs to be reflected back on. You you call it the mm -hmm. Protestant lens, back back on the Protestantism (laughs) itself. Also, (laughs) probably needs to be complicated in those very same ways, right? Right, 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 right.
2: I think we have one, time for one more question. And I, I want us to get back to the topic of Islamization. I think we've said that a couple of times as well. Um, how, how should we understand Islamization, at least maybe, in, at least in the, in, in, in the co- context of Sudan, right? Is Islamization, you know, one may think of that as like, you know, a, a unilateral, unimodal theocratization, of, of government institutions or you know public institutions or social institutions? Or or is the reality more complex than that, right? Is there a way of these secular, quote unquote secular structures of governance, right, whether that be education or the law or public health, um, do these quote unquote secular structures have a way of acting back against the Islamizing processes?
3: Um. Okay. I think I get what you're asking. Let me think about this for one second. Um, mm-hmm. So tell me if this is, if this is what you're, what you're thinking here. I'm thinking back to our conversation uh, last week. Sorry. I know you may have to edit out these, these few words, but um, yeah, like, no worries. Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the main theses of the book for me, um, or let's start here. Uh one of the main theses of the book is to challenge the secular-religious dichotomy in which so much, I think, of our studies have been organized. The, the narrative of the book is bookended by two attempts to establish what was called a secular state. The first chapter of the book um, looks at the uh, British colonial project uh, and mm-hmm. it's for 16 years uh, when it came in to overthrow the Mahdist or the, the last uh, Islamist regime of the 19th century in Sudan and establish a modern secular state in its place. And the epilogue looks at South Sudan uh, and its attempt uh, to unravel the Islamic State um, and establish something that it called a secular state in its midst. And... Um, The reason I do that, somewhat strangely, I started a book on the Islamic State with the British, and end a book on the Islamic State with secularists, is um, to point out that many of the problems that the Islamic State faced, particularly in dealing with diversity, were shared by states that define themselves in secular minds and that many of the modes of organizing religion more generally that the Islamists came to power in 1989 in Sudan used were those that were first established by the British colonial power. So what does that tell us? It tells us to me that this model of thinking of secular and religious uh, uh, political power as dichotomous needs to be rethought that there's something called the modern state out there, and this is where I do resonate with Hadak, um, that, um, that comes to organize religion in very particular ways, whether it's defined as a secular state or as an Islamic state, that in both cases we see um, similar kinds of knots or problem spaces um, that, that arise. And so um for me islamization in Sudan uh is an interesting question of course it's the topic of of the book but i don't see it as in contrast or opposition to uh questions of secularization i think mm. both often are are intertwined um are, are intertwined in a shared problem space
2: mm. Mm. yeah Absolutely, and it's it's not so black and white, and and I think it really you know the the, the complexities of all that dynamic really does come through in the book. You know, I, I was a pleasure reading it on my end.
3: Thanks so much, uh,
2: and for our listeners listening, you know, it's a very readable book. It, it really is the complex, complicated topics. You know, of all, Islamization, Islamism. Secularization and all these things gets really parsed out in very accessible ways. So I highly, highly recommend this book. No wonder it won two awards. Um, yeah, that, but I think you know that's that, very that's generous <laughs> to you right.
3: That's very generous. I mean,
2: so I think that's about uh, all the time that we have today. I do want to just flip it back to Dr. Solomon. Um, perhaps he can share with us very briefly about you know what's to come. You know what's on his scholarly trajectory.
3: Yeah, thanks so much. Um, so as uh, you mentioned, Ray, in the introduction, um, I am currently in uh, Beirut, um, and I'm here as a Andrew W. Mellon Foundation New Directions Fellow. And the New Directions Fellowship um, is a, a mid-career uh, fellowship. I like to call it the Midlife Crisis Fellowship because um, what it asks uh, mid-career scholars to do is study something they've always wanted to study, but uh, have never had the space to study before. So something something new and different. Um, and um, the project that I'm doing uh, tries to take up that spirit by looking across uh, three sites, two new and one old in some sense, but in a new, a new context. Um, and those sites for me, as you mentioned, are Beirut, Moscow, and Khartoum. And the question that i'm I'm asking um, is how Islam comes to manage uh, uh, difference internal mm-hmm. internal to internal to its community. Um, we've read a lot about how modern governmental orders come to structure difference into which various religions are situated, but I mean, the book that I'm, I'm working on to do something really different, which is to look at what resources the Islamic tradition has to talk about and manage plurality and difference. And I mean this mm. both in terms of confronting others and in the sense of performing one's own distinct status within the Ummah or the Islamic community. So, for this reason, I'm looking at these three sites one Shi'i here in Lebanon, one Ibadi in Oman, from which I just returned last week, and the third Sunni, but at this moment in Sudan, reckoning with Islamic politics post-revolution and imagining these new kinds of Islamic futures. And the project gets me into issues about orthodoxy and authority within Islam, the nature and limits of Islamic unity and solidarity, as well as um, reckonings with history and what it means to think Islamically with the past to create new futures beyond the sectarian map that characterizes the post-colonial present. It's, It's kind of my own uh, what is Islam? book. And though it's still a collage with a lot of empty pieces mm-hmm. at this stage, it's been really exciting exploring these new sites and doing the work of trying to sew them together uh, in places and traditions that had been really entirely unfamiliar to me before I started on this grant. So it's been a real uh, delight intellectually.
2: Well, it's been a delight an intellectual pleasure to have you on with us today. And I, for one, am very much looking forward to all your future work. Thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you so, so much, Ray. It's really been such a pleasure chatting with you.
1: Thanks to Ray Kim and Noah Solomon for that great interview. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in today. If you've enjoyed this episode, head over to social media and let us know what you thought. We'd love to continue the conversation there. You can find us on Facebook at The Religious Studies Project or on Twitter at Project RS. And of course, be sure to head to our website, www.religiousstudiesproject.com, for more episodes and responses and all sorts of interesting work.
0: If you'd like to support our work, we encourage you to head to our Patreon at patreon.com slash project RS. If you are a shopper on Amazon, we also would love you to use our Amazon affiliate link, which is found at the end of every interview on our website. And when you shop a small fraction of what you pay for items gets donated to us by Amazon. It doesn't add to the cost of the items you buy, but it does help supplement the income that we have here to pay for servers and hosting and all of the things that make digital projects go around. We thank you very much for your time, and thanks for listening. listening.
2: The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR.
0: And it is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com. Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett Fox and Lauren Osborne, and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver. And social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at
2: patreon.com/projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes, and other portals. Thanks for listening.